You're listening to the Finishing Strong Podcast, a lifestyle podcast for men who want to thrive in the third quarter season of their life, but need a sustainable plan. I'm your host, Steve Poniotu, and my life has been dramatically changed and influenced by some of the most knowledgeable and thoughtful people in their respective fields. I want to share these ideas and people with you, and perhaps they can do the same for you. Growing old doesn't have to suck. Join me as I'm finishing strong. Well, my guest today is Amy Berger. And before you men freak out and wonder why I'm having a woman on, is because she is something special. Um, And the reason I say that is uh, she is the voice of reason in a in a mucky world of low carb and keto and all of these fad kind of stuff out there i have found i've been following her for about a year now and she is just so calm and collected and reasonable and i just I just love that about you, Amy. And um, before I keep going on and on how, how wonderful you are, I'm going to let you do your own bio. Just tell us how you came up uh, to the point you're at and that journey, and then we'll launch into some men's specific topics. Sure. Um, hey, good to good to be here. And um, <laughs> I don't know that I would call myself calm and, and collected, but um, on social media, I am maybe not in real life, but I, I definitely try to be the voice of reason in the keto and low carb world because there's so much craziness out there right now. Um, I let's see, the quick version is I am a nutritionist and writer, and most of the writing I do is focused on ketogenic and low carb nutrition and health in general. Um, I write a lot about insulin, blood sugar, um, let's see, what else, thyroid. Um, diabetes, any anything having to do with like metabolic syndrome, but and and I do see private clients. I, I'm a nutritionist and um, I'm based in North Carolina, but I, I work with people all over the country and even overseas via phone and Skype. So if anyone's looking for a keto nutritionist, I'm your gal. Um, I got into this way of eating myself the way a lot of other people do. I was overweight. Um, I was never obese, but I was pretty chubby and I was pretty chubby despite doing what I thought were all the right things like low fat diet, all my, my whole wheat bread with my light margarine and, you know, taking a napkin and dabbing the extra grease off my pizza. Um, lots and lots of exercise. I was actually in the air force, you know, I'm not afraid of a hard workout, but no matter how much I ran, no matter how much time I spent at the gym, the weight would not budge. And it really destroyed me. Um, my self-esteem was in the toilet and I just felt like a failure and I blamed myself. You know, what's wrong with me? Why, why won't this work? And there's only so many hours in the day you can exercise. Um, at some point, you have to say to yourself, what's wrong here? Why isn't this working? And um, I stumbled upon a copy of the, the 1992 version of Dr. Atkins' New Diet Revolution. It was, I think, the second or third edition of, of what's basically the Atkins book. And uh, my mom got it at a yard sale. And she never read it, but I did. And it made sense. It just made total sense to me. And I'm like, well, I've tried everything else. I've done Weight Watchers. I've done the cabbage soup diet. I've exercised my brains out. What do I have to lose by eating some fat? <laughs> so um, I did it. And I will never forget 
I'm a coffee junkie. And the first time I put heavy cream in my coffee instead of skim milk, I was like, am I going to have a heart attack right now? Or is it going to take a little while? Like, am I going to feel my arteries clogging immediately? And of course it worked, you know, the diet worked, the weight came off. Um, lots of good stuff happened. And I, I was fortunate. I was in my early to mid twenties when I found low carb. So I didn't have any health problems other than the excess weight, but I have a family history of type two diabetes, stroke, cancer, and obesity. So there, there's no doubt in my mind that if I hadn't found low carb when I did, I would right now probably have diabetes. I'd probably have PCOS. I'd probably be obese. So I'd be dealing with some stuff if I didn't, if I hadn't found low carb before that stuff took took root. Um, and who wouldn't love a diet where you can eat steak and bacon and cheese and pork chops and and lose weight and feel great and be in your best health? And so. Um, I had, I had been in and out of a lot of jobs that were just unsatisfying and I didn't like them. I had no, you know, fulfillment. And I realized, hey, wait a minute, nutritionist is a career. Like maybe I could do that. I could actually help other people with, with low carbon ketogenic diets. And so I was a career changer. I went back to graduate school to get a master's in nutrition. And um, that was a bunch of years ago now. And I've been doing this ever since. That's awesome. I like how you put on your on your website, have you been putting off seeing a nutritionist because you're afraid she'll make you swap out burgers and bacon for soy shakes and lentils? I'm not that girl. I love that. And I think, men, you, you have to realize that, that that isn't her. This isn't her going to give you lentils in a big flowery salad with, with no protein or, or fat or and. So I love that about you. Let's get into um, really uh, a great topic I heard um, you podcast on, and that's Alzheimer's. And you wrote a book about it. Tell us about the book and tell us what men need to know about uh, their brain and, and feeding their brain and, and brain health. Yeah, uh, my book is called The Alzheimer's Antidote, and that's available on Amazon. And there, there's a Kindle version. There's no audio version. We've had some requests for that, but we don't have that yet. Um, it's also available in Spanish and a couple of other languages. So if people are not in the U.S., um, there's a couple of other languages available. Bottom line with Alzheimer's is um, they regularly refer to it as type 3 diabetes or diabetes of the brain. And you almost never hear this in the popular press. Like if you get your information from wherever, CNN, Fox News, the New York Times, the Washington Post, whatever outlet you use, anytime there's an article about this illness, you'll almost never, ever hear any mention of what the actual problem is in the brain of somebody with Alzheimer's. And that problem is that neurons in certain regions lose the ability to get energy from glucose. It's basically a fuel shortage or an energy crisis in the brain. And because these cells are not really using glucose properly, they're basically starving. Um, they're atrophying, they're withering. You can see this on an MRI. You can see that the physical structure of the brain is shrinking. And what people need to know, not just men, but anybody, what, what we all need to understand is that this is not a disease of elderly people. I mean, first of all, People as young as their 50s and 60s are becoming diagnosed with this now. They call it early onset Alzheimer's or the precursor is called mild cognitive impairment. Um, but 
the disease process, this fuel starvation starts in some people as young as their 30s and 40s, and they can measure this by PET scan. This is not like a made up thing. It's not a, it's not a guess. They know this. Um, so this decline is measurable when you're young. But the thing is, when you're that young, you're still healthy enough and your brain is still robust enough that you're compensating. You have no signs and symptoms of any cognitive issue at that time. It's only when the disease process has gone on for so long and the damage is so severe that you start showing the memory loss and the personality changes and the behavioral changes. But by the time that happens, this has been going on for years already and in some people decades. And I think that's why it's so hard to make a dent. Like by the time you're even aware that there's a problem, the problem is already pretty severe. Yeah. That's what I really appreciate about your podcast. Um, that, and, and, and how relevant it is to me. And I thought, man, we need to get you on because now is the time. I know we're, you know, thirties uh, and forties is, is the perfect time to start doing, <laughs> I mean, preparing for your, your, your life you know, after midlife, but now is the time the men and women in, in the forties and fifties have to get on this and feeding their brain properly. And so talk about the food that, that really helps with the brain and cognitive function and that kind of thing. So I think, I think we need to take a step back because before we talk about the food, we got to talk about one of the big, big risk factors for Alzheimer's and that is chronically high insulin. So there's a lot of other risk factors for this disease, but regardless of that other stuff, like regardless of your family history, regardless of your genetics, if you have chronically high insulin, you are at greater risk for Alzheimer's period. Um, and so like when we say, when we talk about type three diabetes, that phrase right off the bat tells us that there's at least some connection to glucose and or insulin in the brain. And, um, I have to give the writer Gary Taubes credit because his book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, was the first place I ever read about a potential connection between glucose, insulin, and Alzheimer's. I'd never heard of that before. So if you have chronically high insulin, you are at greater risk for this disease. So what makes people have chronically high insulin? There's a lot of different things that affect insulin, but one of the most powerful things is um, dietary carbohydrate. And it depends on the total amount of carbohydrate and, and the kinds of carbohydrate we eat. But the bottom line is dietary carbohydrate really affects insulin more than just about anything else that we have total control over. So in order to you know, protect healthy brain function and healthy cognition, what we want to do is eat and live in such a way as to keep our blood sugar and insulin levels within a healthy range. And the amount of carbohydrate that any of us is going to be able to consume and still achieve that is going to be different. You know, everyone has kind of a different carbohydrate tolerance. Some people are going to need to stay in the very, very low sort of ketogenic range, 20 or 30 grams of carbs a day. Some people can do 50 to 80 grams of carbs a day. Some people can do 200 grams a day and be fine. The main thing is that you want to keep those, uh, those blood sugar and insulin levels healthy. And something really important that people really need to understand is that um, when we say type 3 diabetes, it's, it's, it doesn't just have to do with the blood sugar. When, when they diagnose type 2 diabetes, they only look at your blood sugar or your blood glucose. They never look at insulin. 
And without exaggeration, there are millions, literally millions of people right now who have perfectly normal blood sugar. But the reason the blood sugar is normal is because very, very high insulin is keeping that sugar in check. And in Alzheimer's disease and a lot of other um, health issues, including things specifically that men need to be concerned about, like erectile dysfunction and BPH, the uh, benign prostate hypertrophy, the enlarged prostate gland, come from chronically high insulin, even when your blood sugar is normal. Wow. So tell, tell me why high insulin is, uh, is harmful to the brain. What is it about that? That's a really good question. And the truth is, we don't really know. We know for sure that the problem in the Alzheimer's brain is that um, it's it's a lack of, of fuel from glucose. It's They call it a um, impaired cerebral glucose metabolism. Basically, the brain is not getting fuel from glucose. We think the insulin might play some role in that, but getting glucose into the brain is not insulin dependent. Like a lot of people listening maybe know insulin is a blood sugar hormone, right? In the brain, glucose can, like sugar can get into the brain just fine without any insulin. But there are insulin receptors all throughout different regions of the brain. So insulin is doing something there. We're not even sure what, the research is still evolving. Um, and some people in, when they have Alzheimer's disease, even though they have high insulin in what we call the periphery, which is like the whole rest of the body besides the brain and the central nervous system, in the brain, they have less insulin. And again, we really don't know why, but we know that these are features of Alzheimer's disease. And um, <clears throat> my opinion, I mean, it's an educated speculation, is that, um, and, and we can dig down into the details if if you want, but the shutting off of glucose metabolism in the brain is almost a protective mechanism because, you know, it's perfectly fine for the brain to use glucose, but when we overload our bodies with glucose all the time from just constant, constant refined carbohydrate eating, snacking all day, eating 62 times a day, um, it really gets overwhelmed. And um, there's various biochemical mechanisms that are seen in the Alzheimer's brain that suggest it's actually a defensive step. The brain is deliberately reducing the use of glucose because it's already so damaged from so many years and decades of this sort of nutritional onslaught that as a protective step, it's turning off the glucose spigot. And that could have something to do with um, down-regulating insulin in the brain. But unfortunately, a lot of those um, questions are unanswered. But I think the beauty of this is we don't have to know all of the answers to that for certain in order to craft a plan that could, in theory, protect against this or help prevent it. Um, because if, if you look even at type 2 diabetes, We've been researching this for like 200 years. We still don't know what the actual cause is. There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of controversy as to what the cause is. But that doesn't change the fact that a low-carbohydrate or ketogenic diet is at least one very, very effective method for totally reversing it. So I think in Alzheimer's, we don't, we don't have to have all the answers to be able to take some helpful action. So would you say that your brain becomes insulin-resistant then? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I would say that, and you'll even find a lot of papers in the medical literature with that phrase, brain insulin resistance. Um, 
it's funny though, because it's, I, we can use that phrase, but I don't like that phrase that much because nobody really knows what it means. Insulin resist, you know, does that mean that there's a lot of insulin and it's just not working properly or why isn't it working properly? Um, but if people, you know, sort of get the sense of insulin is either not working properly or there's so much of it that it's, it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf. Like when there's so much insulin, like, okay, we get it. Insulin, eventually the body just stops listening to it. So there's a ton of insulin, but it's just not doing its job anymore because the body is sort of tuning it out. In that sense, we can, we can say insulin resistant. Yeah. Right. So our, so our brains get, uh, with, with a high carb diet, our brains get an influx of, of sugar and blood glucose or glucose to the brain. It gets overwhelmed insulin is high and it it becomes impaired and um so what is the best thing we can do um so we're gonna we're gonna slowly remove carbohydrates and get on a healthier uh percentage of carbohydrates depending on your body and work this down so what would you say is the optimal fuel for the brain, if, if that's a right question. I mean, I know people talk about, and there's a big controversy about, you know, the, the brain needing sugar and that's why you need carbs and, and that kind of thing. But what would be, what would you say the optimal fuel for your brain is? Um, yeah, I'll get to that in one second. But before that, um, just I want to briefly mention some other risk factors for Alzheimer's because it's not, you know, we can't say for sure that it's total carbohydrate consumption. I mean, we know that the glucose and insulin are a factor, like type 2 diabetes, but besides the chronically high insulin, type 2 diabetes is a major risk factor for Alzheimer's. But especially with speaking in terms of the diet, vitamin B12 deficiency is very, very common. I think it's um, under-recognized. So that can contribute, um, hypothyroidism that is not properly treated over the long term can cause cognitive impairment. Like there's a lot of different things, zinc deficiency, iron deficiency. So it's not just the carbs, but imagine how much worse this is all made when all of those things happen together, right? You could have a super, super high refined carb diet and be B12 deficient and be hypothyroid. It's like a nightmare. But, um, with all that in mind, um, People are probably used to hearing that glucose is the preferred fuel for the brain or um, that the brain needs a certain amount of glucose. And it is true that the brain uses a lot of glucose. But I've never, this is a bit controversial, but other, I've heard, I've heard some doctors say the same thing. The brain uses a lot of glucose, but we've, we don't have any certainty that the brain must always use glucose um, or that it... Because so, huh, I should take a step back. It's such a big topic. Um, just because the brain does need some glucose doesn't mean that that glucose has to come from dietary carbohydrate. The human body is this incredible, extraordinary reuse and recycle machine. We can make glucose in-house from a lot of other things. We can make it from amino acids. We can make it from glycerol. We can make it from all sorts of other stuff. So just because we need glucose, doesn't mean we have to eat bagels and bread and pasta. Like just because you need vitamin C doesn't mean you need to drink orange juice. You can get vitamin C from broccoli, from bell peppers. Like there's a lot of mixing and matching that goes on. So that's the first thing. The second thing is 
The brain is kind of like a hybrid car. It does need some glucose, but it doesn't only use glucose. It can also use this other fuel called ketones. And it uses ketones very, very efficiently, very um, beautifully. We can think of ketones as like a, a cleaner burning fuel. Um, and it actually, you know, not to get too deep, but the um, biochemically, the uh, molecules of ketones provide more energy than molecules of glucose in the first place. They're a more efficient fuel because like gram for gram, molecule for molecule, you get more energy out of the ketones than you do out of the glucose. And so when I was saying we're not sure that the brain even really needs glucose, we constantly say, well, you know, the brain needs so and so many grams of glucose per day, or, you know, it, it needs this much percentage. We've never really conclusively proven that. We know that ketones can account for as much as 60 to 80% of the brain fuel. Like when you're in a very, very deep state of ketosis, when you're fasting or you're on a super, super ketogenic diet, um, ketones can replace up to at least that much of the brain fuel. Maybe it can be 100%. We don't know. I don't know if anyone's ever tried to figure that out or how you would even devise an experiment for that. But the point is, when you have some ketones circulating and getting in the brain, um, the need for glucose decreases a lot. And the thing is, in Alzheimer's disease, this brain fuel shortage is specific to glucose. People with Alzheimer's disease can still metabolize ketones in the brain. And they've shown this not just in like mice and rats and Petri dishes, but in actual human beings with the mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's, they can still use ketones. So, um, it's really, it's, it's one of the most promising, uh, most encouraging areas, I think, of research for this disease, because there's, there are zero pharmaceutical drugs that are effective for slowing this down or for um, potentially even reversing it. There's, there's a lot of drugs on the market. There's drugs available for it. They do basically nothing to have any positive impact on the problem. That's a, that's a great point. What I'd like to do is, is, um, just define ketone for us because not all of us are scientific and, and that kind of thing. But tell, tell, tell us in a, in a layman's term, when you say ketone and you've used it a lot, what does that mean? Ketones are um, a fuel molecule. I'll, I'll try to just speak in plain English. Um, when your body is burning fat, when you're breaking down fat, ketones are produced as kind of a byproduct from that. But the ketones themselves can also be used as fuel. So they're like glucose and like fat in that sense that they're just a fuel the body can metabolize to convert to energy. Um, but ketones are made exclusively from the breakdown of fat. Um, you can make them when you're, like I said, when you're fasting or when you're on a very low carb diet. Um, there's... Um, other ways, there's, there's certain oils like called, you, you, people have probably seen MCT. It means medium chain triglyceride. It's a special kind of fat that the liver more readily converts into ketones, even when you're not on a ketogenic diet. If you're eating lots of carbs, you can take MCT oil and you'll still make some ketones. Um, but basically, the ketones are only produced when your insulin levels are really, really low. And in most people, you know, there's some very healthy, active insulin sensitive people out there that can eat a lot of carbs and still have lower insulin. For most of us, um, especially if we know 
we have a metabolic illness or, you know, hypertension, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, um, we, we have like an over, overactive insulin response to certain types of carbohydrate. Like instead of just pumping out a normal amount, our bodies go crazy and they just flood us with insulin. And insulin is directly antagonistic to making ketones. If your insulin is high, you're just not going to make ketones. Awesome. That, that's, that's really good. So we, so we keep our uh, carbs low. Insulin uh, is decreased. And then we start producing ketones from the fat that we're burning. These ketones are then used as a fuel for the rest of our body. I mean, our brain and organs and those kind of things. Is that accurate? That is totally accurate, except the longer you're on a ketogenic diet or fasting, um, the muscle cells, like most of your muscles and organs and other tissue will use fats. So they'll use the fatty acids and then the ketones are kind of spared for the brain. But some of those tissues will still use ketones, but in general, they will switch from running primarily on carbs to running primarily on fats or ketones. And that's called being fat adapted? Yeah. Great. Awesome. What else, what else do we need to know about our brain and, and brain health? Um, we need, we need certain kinds of fats. Like if people have heard of DHA, it's one of the omega threes that are found in like fish oils and sardines and salmon and all that. Um, that particular fat makes up, I want to say about 20% of the fat in the, in the brain. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But DHA is a huge, huge part of the physical structure of the brain. Um, your brain is built largely out of fat and cholesterol. About 25% of all the cholesterol in your body is in your brain. So um, there is absolutely no need to be afraid of cholesterol, whether it's cholesterol in your blood and in your body or cholesterol in your egg yolks and your bacon and your fatty steak. Um, we love cholesterol. Cholesterol is essential for healthy brain function. And I'm not a physician, so I, I don't you know, talk to anyone about starting or stopping any medication. All I can do is provide information. And so if anyone is taking a statin drug, which is a drug that lowers cholesterol by interfering with your body's own production of cholesterol. Um, you, you make more cholesterol than you could ever eat, ever, unless you were eating a diet exclusively of butter and egg yolks. Um, your, your liver manufactures cholesterol because your body needs cholesterol. It's in every single cell membrane, every single neuronal membrane. Um, it's the precursor to testosterone. So like, if, if you're a dude and you're on a statin and you, your libido is tanking and you have muscle pain and weakness and you're fatigued and you're depressed um, and you're having brain fog, if you're having cognitive problems, those are all well-known, well-documented side effects of statins. And again, I'm not telling anyone to stop their medication, but you know, get, get yourself educated on what this drug is doing to you and whether or not you really should be on it. Because especially within our low carb and keto community, there's um, a lot of new information emerging about the fact that high cholesterol by itself, it's not a disease. You can't be diagnosed with high cholesterol because it's not a disease. It's a measurement of something in your bloodstream. And the amount of cholesterol in your bloodstream tells you absolutely nothing 
about your risk for cardiovascular disease or heart attack. Um, there's a lot of people right now on very low carb diets who have shockingly high cholesterol, including the LDL, um, where everything else looks fine. Their insulin is low, glucose is low, inflammation is very low. Um, they're healthy, they're active, they're fit, they're lean. Um, when they get an actual scan of the actual heart where they measure the buildup of plaque in the arteries, they have zero. So even though their cholesterol is through the roof, there is no evidence whatsoever of any plaque in the arteries. So in these cases, we don't know whether the cholesterol means anything. I'm not saying it doesn't, but we don't know that it does anymore. So I just think if, if people are concerned about high cholesterol, that's, you know, they, they need to learn a little more of the story. And with regard to Alzheimer's, especially, it's been shown over and over and over again that higher cholesterol seems to actually be beneficial in older age for, for overall health and especially for cognitive function. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen uh, studies like that. The the higher the cholesterol, the high the the lower of uh, mortality, all cause mortality. And so we are. It's it's it. It's really um, intuitive that we eat good food that either contain it or not cholesterol our body makes it, it's going to regulate something that important. And uh, um, it's, it's going to really, we're not going to leave that. I don't think our body's going to leave, leave that decision of what we should eat and, and that kind of thing to ourselves. It's going to make and regulate it. And it's ourselves and cholesterol. Yeah. It has to be looked at as a nutrient and not something to be feared. And it's just a marker. And so Thanks for, for bringing that up and, and speaking to, about that. So we have uh, ketones feed in our brain. We have, it's important to get uh, fish oil in there. Uh, managing your body is managing cholesterol. So eating good food. So we get the building blocks for cholesterol. And is there anything else we, you would say this would be a, a great, Alzheimer diet or, 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 uh, you know, what, what do we need? What other foods do we need for our brain? Yeah. Um, I get the question a lot, you know, cause my book really celebrates or sort of recommends the low carb, high fat or low carb ketogenic type approach. So people ask me like, do I have to do keto? Um, or like if you're 50 or 60 or 70 years old and you've been eating the standard American crap all your life, you're thinking, is it too late? Like, am I already, do I already have one foot in the Alzheimer's grave? Um, and I'm always very careful to talk about potential prevention of Alzheimer's. You know, we don't, we don't know for sure that we can prevent it. I think we can, but you know, we have to say potentially because we don't know. So for me, in order to potentially prevent a cognitive decline, um, I don't think you need a ketogenic diet. Um, like I said before, what you do have to do is eat in a way that keeps insulin and blood sugar in a healthy range. And that obviously also provides you all the essential vitamins and minerals that we need just for healthy, you know, brain structure and cognitive function. Um, 
And if, if you look around the world, you know, we have literally billions of healthy people who live into old age with all their cognitive faculties intact, and they're not eating ketogenic diets. So obviously, a ketogenic diet is not required to potentially ward off Alzheimer's. Um, what is required is keeping yourself healthy. And um, so I think in order to potentially prevent, like if you're already healthy and looking to stay healthy, you could probably do that with something like a higher fat Mediterranean type diet or a paleo diet where you're getting lots of good quality animal proteins, lots of good quality red meat, pork, seafood, poultry, um, dairy, and like a wide variety of different, you know, lower starch vegetables. But even, even then, like there's room for fruit, there's room for sweet potatoes and beets and starchy like parsnips and stuff. You know, it would be stupid for me to say, that strawberries are causing Alzheimer's disease or chickpeas are causing Alzheimer's. Like clearly that's not the issue. So I think there's room for that if you're healthy and looking to stay healthy. On the other hand, if you are already on the trajectory toward this disease or any other sort of metabolic hyperinsulinemic disease, which again would be like obesity, type 2 diabetes. Um, in women, it would be PCOS, um, gout, hypertension, erectile dysfunction. Um, if you have skin tags, all of this stuff is a sign of chronically high insulin. So if you're already on that path, drastic times call for drastic measures. Like That's not the time to play around, um, especially if you know that you have mild cognitive impairment or you're heading in, th in that direction, that's the time to hit this really hard. Then I think you do want a ketogenic diet. So you want very, very low carb. You want lots of healthy fats. And by healthy fats, I mean fats from animal products like pork and beef and poultry and, and wild game, but also like olive oil, coconut oil, um, you know, small amounts of sesame oil, stuff like that. Um, so and that's, that's probably different from what people are used to hearing about like quote unquote heart healthy vegetable oils, which you really kind of want to go easy or avoid the soybean oil, the corn oil, cottonseed oil, all this, you know, cotton is for wearing, not for eating. I don't know why we're eating cottonseed oil, but um, <laughs> just stuff like that. You know, if, if you can get the fatty fish, like sardines and mackerel for those really good omega-3s, if you don't like that stuff or you're allergic to fish, you can get omega-3s. Um, if, if you just don't like fish, then I would recommend a fish oil supplement. If you're allergic, you can get omega-3s from certain plant foods, but the body does not convert them into the animal form very well, which in, in the animal form is <coughs> really the one we need more. You just want to eat a whole foods, unprocessed diet, and you certainly don't need to be afraid of, of red meat and fatty foods. Awesome. Let's go into the uh, other areas uh, that affect men that you brought up with the hyperinsulinemia, um, the BPH and the ED. Could you speak about those? Yeah. Um, insulin, you know, I think we'll, we'll link to the blog post that I wrote in the show notes, but it's like very under-recognized how much insulin affects the body totally unrelated to blood sugar. You know, we said earlier, most people are used to thinking of insulin as a blood sugar hormone and it does help keep blood sugar in check. But the more I've learned about and researched what insulin does, that aspect of insulin to me has become the least impressive, least important thing that insulin does. You can think of insulin as like an anabolic hormone. It builds things up. It makes things grow. It makes things bigger. And when you think of something like testosterone, 
as an anabolic hormone. Like, wow, that's great. Give me some more tea. That's not what you want with insulin. Just because some is good doesn't mean more is better. We do need insulin. Like I, I don't want to falsely demonize insulin because that's starting to happen a little too much in our low carb world too. Insulin is an essential hormone. Like we need it, but we don't need a ton of it all day, every day swimming in our bloodstream. At insulin just kind of encourages the growth of tissue. It encourages the growth of the prostate gland. Um, we, we know, we know only too well, most of us, that it encourages the growth of fat tissue, right? Um, one of the doctors I, I interviewed with a while back said, insulin is like miracle grow for your fat cells. So you don't want lots of insulin sprinkling around. Um, insulin kind of signals to you that you're in the fed state. It signals to you that living is good, food is abundant. And so now is the time to store, like evolutionarily speaking, insulin is high. It means there's lots of food around. We're eating all the time, but our bodies are hardwired for that not to be the case at some point, right? Maybe a couple of weeks or months later, there's going to be a famine. Food is going to be scarce. We better store stuff while we can. While this insulin is high, we better sock away some, some stuff, some food, some fat, some amino acids, some of everything. So that's what insulin does. It stores stuff. It, it puts stuff into storage. And, um, when, when you're living in storage mode all the time, that's why we get big. It's why we become obese. It's why the prostate gland enlarges. It's why we get skin tags. It's why women get cysts on their ovaries. I mean, it's, it just encourages the growth of tissue, like the random uncontrolled growth. So is there a, uh, when we talk about BPH and that kind of thing, what happens if, can a guy um, not have a gut and have, BPH. I mean, how does it how does it uh, not you know fill your your fat cells, but go to your your prostate or uh, you know what I'm saying? Is there is there a, or is there a, a sequence of events you know with some of these underlying issues? No, that is a fabulous question, and I'm glad you asked because I would have forgotten to kind of talk about this issue. It's um. You know, I know we keep talking about obesity and insulin is like storage, make you big. There's plenty of people who, for whatever reason, do not put on a lot of excess weight. So these people look okay. That We, we call them TOFI, T-O-F-I, thin outside, fat inside. From the outside, they don't, they look healthy just because they're lean and they're thin, right? But on the inside, they're actually very, very sick, very metabolically deranged, as we call it. Um when you look at their blood work, they have the blood work of someone who is very ill, who has metabolic syndrome. They have high, high triglycerides, low HDL. They might have hypertension. Um, you know, somebody might, they might have high blood sugar. And in some of these people, they, um, they might be thin when you just look at them from the outside, but they have a lot of fat actually building up in their liver or in their pancreas. And when, it's, it's actually, I don't want to get too far afield, but it's called the personal fat threshold theory. And the personal fat threshold says that each of us has an individual sort of genetically determined capacity to store body fat, like in our hips and our thighs and our arms and our double chins and our backs. Once that fat storage is full, your body has to put excess incoming energy somewhere else. And it will put it in your muscle tissue and it will put it in your liver and your pancreas. The last place you want any fat to start building up 
is in your pancreas and in your liver. These are the organs that help regulate blood sugar and insulin. Um, and so there's a lot of people, if you have a low personal fat threshold, meaning your body simply doesn't have the constitution to store a ton of body fat, because you can't store a ton of body fat, your body has to put it in the liver and pancreas instead. This is why we can have people, like you said, who are thin, who are lean, who are actually raging type 2 diabetics, or they have a raging hyperinsulinemia, or they have BPH, or they have erectile dysfunction. And you know, on the flip side of that, you can have someone who's very, very heavy, who's actually healthy. On the inside, you get their blood work back, and they're in perfect health. They just happen to be fat. Um, so it's really coming, coming from having been a heavier person, despite exercising a ton and eating what I thought was a good diet, the judging and the shaming of people based on weight and size is so um, offensive to me and so hurtful because I, this just isn't how it works. You absolutely cannot look at somebody and, and, and be able to tell how healthy they are or whether or not they exercise or what they eat based on their shape or size. Um, and, and something that we haven't mentioned that I'll just talk about real quick is that because we, we talked about the BPH, the reason the erectile dysfunction is an issue with insulin is because erectile dysfunction, as I'm sure men listening know if they've experienced this problem, it's not a libido problem. It's not a lack of interest in your partner. It's not a lack of sexual desire. It's a physical problem why you can't sustain an erection. Erectile dysfunction is a cardiovascular problem. If you have ED that you know is not caused by something else like a physical trauma to the to the region or like depression or some type of psychological thing, if you just, for lack of a better phrase, can't get it up, it's a cardiovascular problem because what allows an erection is like a, a rush of blood flow to the penis, right? And if your blood vessels are not functioning properly and, and the, the blood vessels can't dilate properly and blood is not flowing properly to that area, you cannot get an erection no matter how interested you are. So there's actually some papers, we could even maybe put a link or two in the notes. There's some papers in the scientific literature saying that in some men, especially younger men, Erectile dysfunction is the first sign of early cardiovascular disease. So if you're a dude and you are young and there's no known explanation for why you're having trouble with ED, you probably have high insulin because the insulin really, really messes with blood vessel function and cardiovascular function. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is how, what is that mechanism with the cardiovascular and the, and the high insulin? Well, so the mechanism, I don't know if it's known for sure. My guess would be that it's it's twofold. When your blood sugar is, and, and not everyone with a chronically high insulin has high blood sugar, but a lot of people do. So we'll just talk about the sugar first. When you have chronically high blood sugar, think of that like turning your blood from water into molasses. Instead of being like this watery, super fluid, easily flowing liquid, it's this thick, gloppy stuff. It's a lot harder for your heart to pump that through your body. It's a lot harder for your blood vessels to take that. Um, that's number one. Number two, the insulin itself um, messes with the ability of the blood vessels to dilate. You know, we want, we want those blood vessels to dilate to accommodate the blood flow. And it, when insulin is high, it affects the sympathetic nervous system. And, and that's your fight or flight thing. Like, like when you're, um, you know, just like tense and, and poised to, to fight off some kind of crazy thing. That's your like adrenaline and cortisol. And, but 
insulin alone can affect that. Even when you don't feel particularly stressed out, you don't feel you're not, you're not in an emergency situa- situation, but if you have chronically high insulin, that's going on inside you, even if you don't know it. It's actually stiffening your blood vessels, making them less pliant. So now you have this like thick, syrupy blood trying to flow through these hard, crusty vessels, which is the opposite of what's in a healthy person. So you can't, um, you just can't have a proper erection because you're not, the, the blood vessels are not working properly. Wow. Good stuff. Um, talk about cortisol in, in the ac- uh, reaction to stress and what that does to ED. Um, chronically high cortisol. So cortisol, again, is like one of those fight or flight type hormones that um, is kind of just like insulin. We need some, but more is not better. Um, chronically high cortisol can cause weight gain, especially around the middle, that abdominal obesity. Um it raises blood sugar. That's kind of what cortisol's job is. Like if like going, going back again from the evolutionary perspective, um, if, if you were out on the Savannah, on the prairie, whatever, a couple of thousand million years ago, and you are in an emergency, there's some wild animal coming about to attack you. Um, you have to either fight for your life or get the heck out of there. Either way, you need a ton of energy very, very quickly. And cortisol and some of the other neurotransmitters and hormones like adrenaline and stuff like that are designed to flood your body with energy, specifically in the form of glucose, um, to give you that quick burst, to be able to run for your life or fight for your life. So in the, and, and that's great when you're actually in an emergency situation. But in 2019, when our stressful situations are not life-threatening. They're more like maybe you had a fight with your boss or um, you're stuck in a really bad traffic jam. These are our modern day stressors where we get so aggravated and you get so worked up and that cortisol is flooding your body with glucose, but you're not fighting for your life or running for your life. You're sitting there behind the wheel stewing or you're sitting there you know, at your cubicle wanting to kill your boss in silence. So we have all this glucose and it has nowhere to go. So, I mean, it raises the blood sugar, which will raise the insulin. Um, so it's just kind of vicious feedback cycle. And so when, when people are on a low, low-ish carb diet and they're not losing weight or they're not getting all the results they want, that's one of the areas we look to is, is how are the stress levels? Because that sort of chronic stress can be the undoing of, of even the best low-carb diet. Good. Good stuff. Thank you for that. Um, can we talk about uh, structure? Uh, I mean, the physical structure of a man and what happens when we get older in our 50s, 60s, 70s? Um, I think a lot of what happens during aging is the loss of muscle mass. Even if you don't have overt sarcopenia, which sarcopenia is the loss of muscle mass, um, there's a word called dynapenia which is a loss of strength. You can lose both or you can lose one or the other. Um, That's a big part of aging is we just sort of atrophy. And um, I think there's a lot of reasons why. Um, A lot of us just become less active. We become more sedentary. We're not using and challenging our muscles as much um, for various reasons. Um, Some of it's nutritional. We, We don't eat as many or as much of the things 
that help keep the body um, robust and strong. And digestive function, unfortunately, I think sort of naturally does decline with age. You know, I think there's a reason someone who's 85 doesn't digest a big honking steak as effectively as a 25-year-old. Right. So so what's, uh, what's the remedy for... Is there a difference between what you want to eat for dynopenia and sarcopenia and... And what would be those differences? There isn't, as far as I know, there's not a difference. That's not my real area of expertise. I mean, what you really want to do is make sure you're getting adequate, complete protein. And by complete protein, I mean either from an animal source or if you are a vegetarian listening to this, you, you probably know that you just need to sort of be careful about getting a wide variety of different protein sources because things like beans and grains and nuts and all that have different amino acid profiles. And in order to get the full complement of the essential amino acids, the ones that we need that our bodies can't make ourselves, you do have to get a variety, whereas animal proteins have the complete protein. And that, that includes eggs and dairy, not just meat and chicken and stuff like that. So you want to make sure you're getting the full complement. But there is a ton of research indicating that older people need more protein, not less. Like we tend to think, oh, you know, you're old, you're inactive, you don't need that much protein. You need more because the digestive efficiency is less. It takes more protein to achieve the same effect that less protein achieves in somebody younger. Um, so that's part of it. And it's, I, I forget the exact amount, but you know, if anyone listening is familiar with some of the numbers they usually cite, sometimes they recommend 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of your body weight. And that's not 0.8 grams of protein by scale weight, meaning like if you put a chicken breast on a food scale and it weighs a certain amount, we mean grams of protein. So for example, I think a three, a th what is it like? It, it's a certain number of grams per ounce. I don't want to get too, too far afield, but um, the point is we need more. Elderly people should be at something like 1.5 grams per kilogram, if not more. I really think it's pretty hard to overdose on protein. Protein is pretty satisfying. It's pretty self-limiting. You're not going to sit down and eat four pounds of steak in a sitting unless, you know, you might be Sean Baker. If, if anyone listening here knows of uh, the growing carnivore movement, some of them are doing that. But the average normal person out there is... Um, probably going to benefit, males and females, probably going to benefit from more protein. A lot of us crave sugar or crave other stuff when what our bodies really need is protein. Yes, I agree. Totally. Um, so uh, there's a lot of other topics that you know about, and I'd love to have you back, especially uh, there's one called the metabolic theory of cancer that, I, that you've blogged about. And on your website, you have so many great topics um, for men and women. But um, I, I really appreciate your understanding of a metabolism and how it affects our lives in the, those kind of things. So you guys out there, don't be afraid to look at a, a woman's blog. She is amazing. You got tons of different topics and really relevant to, to what we're going through. I'd love to keep talking, but we got to be sensitive to both of our schedules. And um, I'd love to have you back to talk about theory of cancer, metabolic theory of cancer, and other topics. Um, where can people look you up 
and and find you? Um, my website is tuitnutrition.com. That's spelled T-U-I-T, nutrition.com. Um, they can email me through there. There's a contact me form. I am very active on Twitter. My handle is tuitnutrition. And the book, again, is The Alzheimer's Antidote. That's available on Amazon. And I, I did want to say real quick, yeah, guys, the beautiful thing about the low-carb diet, and I'm, I'm stereotyping here, but like what warm-blooded, hot-blooded man wouldn't want to follow a way of eating where he gets to eat his steak and his bacon cheeseburger. You just can't eat the bun. And with the steak, no potato, like you get to eat all these delicious, amazing foods. Um, you might have to give up beer if you're trying to lose weight, but you can have wine, you can have spirits. Like this is, this is the anti-diet. This is the man diet if there ever was one. Yeah. And, and, and I appreciate you talking to, um, on your, on Twitter and, and those kind of things about don't get obsessed with with you know following numbers and 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 measuring out your food and those kinds of things. Can you speak to that and uh, about just being you know free to eat as much as you want in in areas and that kind of thing? Speak to that, Amy. Yeah, um, I I love food. I love to eat. Food is delicious. I love cooking. I love looking at cookbooks. I love shopping for food. Food is too beautiful and fun a thing to turn it into a math project. And um, when you're, especially if you're new, if you're new to a lower carb way of eating, there's really no need to weigh and measure your food or track your food. You don't have to like turn yourself into a robot with all these devices and apps and watches and rings that track all different stuff. Um, you really just need to keep your carbs very, very low. Get your body adjusted. And I will say though, if you're not getting the results you want, whatever that means, whether it's losing weight or maybe you want to improve your blood sugar or stuff like that, if the results that you want aren't coming, then it might be helpful for at least a couple of days or weeks to track because maybe you are a lot further away from the diet you thought you were following. Maybe you're eating a lot more carbs than you realized, or maybe you're eating too little protein or too much fat. Um, but in general, most people don't really have to track. If you stick to foods that you know are, I hate the word safe, but su suitable, let's say. If you stick to foods you know are suitable and pretty much always avoid the ones you know you need to avoid, this is going to work. Um, when it doesn't work, then that's the time to get a little uh, you know, mathematical. Right. What what are a few of the foods that um, that when you're working with somebody that say I'm not losing any weight, I'm not feeling better or whatever, and you look at their food journal, what are those foods that are are the culprits typically? Uh, the fatty coffees for sure. Um, there is there's this weird new movement where people want to put oil and butter in their coffee. And to be fair, some people can get away with that. If you're not trying to lose weight, you can get away with that. Or if you're using a ketogenic or low carb diet for some other reason, that's fine. But if someone is specifically struggling to lose body fat, liquid calories are the first thing that have to go. Just because you're on a low carb or ketogenic diet doesn't mean that calories don't matter or that total fat intake doesn't matter. <clears throat> you know, if you're eating so much fat in your food, or in your beverages, your body has no need to burn its own stored fat instead. So I say that those fatty coffees are kind of the keto equivalent of, of Mountain Dew and of like sugary sodas. 
even people not on any particular health diet know that it's probably a bad idea to drink soda, like to drink sugar-sweetened beverages. And in the keto world, we have to start learning that it's not such a great idea to drink liquid fat. But again, I'm not demonizing it entirely. There are There's a time and place where that might be effective, but liquid calories are the first to go. Um, some people are more sensitive than others to sugar alcohols and fillers in things like sugar-free or, you know, products that are marketed as keto or low carb, like various bars and shakes and keto cookies and stuff. Um, these products can be great. They're delicious. They can make keto easier and more fun to stick to, but they can mess with some people, especially if, um, stuff like maltitol and xylitol, those are not zero carb. They, they do still have an impact on your blood sugar and insulin. It's less than regular sugar, but some people that are really sensitive to that stuff kind of have to eliminate that altogether and just eat real, real food, like, like meat and vegetables and nuts and that's it. Awesome. So when we, when we go right now, Amy, give us a, a just a summary Give us your, your, your last pitch for brain health and those male issue, issues. Yeah. So the good news is the diet that's good for your brain is good for your heart. It's good for your waistline. It's good for your male reproductive parts. You don't have to have a separate intervention for all of these things. And um, I am partial to the low carb, higher fat diet. Um, that doesn't mean you have to never, ever eat a slice of bread ever, but you want to eat whole, unprocessed foods. That means you might have to spend some time in the kitchen cooking a little more than you're used to. Um, but you can dine out. There's no uh, no need to avoid restaurants or even fast food if you're on a budget or you don't like to cook. Get the bunless burger. You're all you're good to go. Um, it's it's simpler than you think it is. You don't have to do the math. You don't have to count anything. Um, you don't have to buy special products or pills or shakes. You can just go to your regular grocery store and buy food. The only difference is that you're going to be avoiding sugar and starch. Everything else is kind of, kind of not, it's not rocket science. Great. What a great message, Amy. Thank you for, for the time. And, and I know there's going to be a lot of people that get a lot out of this and follow her on Twitter and go to her blog um, it's great. It, there's so many topics and share it with, with friends and family. Thank you again, Amy. Look forward to talking to you again. Thank you for listening to the Finishing Strong podcast. If you've been impacted by what you've heard on this episode, like, comment, and subscribe and tell a friend. Follow our guests and check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Growing old doesn't have to suck. Join me as I'm finishing strong.